Hi all, welcome to Anime Echoes. We'll be exploring Lad, his betrothed, Lua, Fred the Magician, and Rachel the Ride Stealer. A common theme of death will be explored in this novel, and also in a turmoil. We'll start off with the white-suited duo, Lad and Lua. In the last novel, we left off with Lad chasing after China on the roof of the train. Before this scene, we get a flashback where we come to understand that Lad sees one of his men, Dune, having been massacred in the conductor's room. An absolute bloodbath. As we can assume, Lad doesn't mourn the loss of his friend. He dances around crazily, laughing, jumping around and splashing through the blood of his friend. Despite this lack of tact, he does vow to avenge him. Now to quickly recap some aspects of Lad's character so that we all understand him, he is a hedonistic murderer, which means he loves to kill. He used to be calculating, but now he just decides to murder people recklessly. That being said, he's very skilled at fighting. One key fact about him is that he hates people who are confident and thinks they aren't going to die. He wants to see the despair set into their eyes and watch the confidence vanish from their faces. He gets off on robbing people of their confidence. That's who Lad is and lucky for us, we learn more about Lad in this volume. Turns out, contrary to the crazy person jumping around in blood, Lad was raised in a fairly normal family as far as mafiosos go. His family, as far as we know, isn't like him. They're quite tame in comparison. What this means is that we can't look towards his family to find some key moment that made Lad the way he is. No inciting incident. There's no tragic event that twisted Lad. What made him the way that he is now is a thought. His entire personality was formed with the conception of an idea in his mind. Lad was fascinated by life and death. Specifically, the people who died and the people who didn't. It was a random thought that had occurred to him, and he couldn't help but be engulfed by it. He was obsessed with death and the people who lost to it, and the people who managed to push it back. Because of this fascination, he'd be interested in killing others, and also because of his naturally high speed of comprehension, he would quickly become accustomed to the killings. Murdering people and the death associated with that was a feeling he understood very quickly. He could make interpretations about what the murder meant in relation to his obsessive thought with the rapid succession of each kill. He was gaining an understanding of death, and because he gained comprehension over it so fast, his experience of killing people grew rapidly. Despite this understanding, we have to recall that Lad was obsessed with this idea. There would never be enough to quench it. And so, he would just follow his thought, and his behaviour would be the result of this, generally causing mass murder. So as long as that thought exists, Lad just follows his desires, seeing his fascination with death expand. Now all of this makes Lad out to be someone who doesn't hold things to be valuable. While this isn't 100% true, he does have some values and things he holds dear. Ultimately, they do act at the behest of the thought. These values are aesthetics, just personal preferences that ultimately flavour the behaviour he elicits when he pursues that thought. The desire is absolute. In a way, he's similar to Claire Stanfield. Claire believes the world to revolve around him, and because of that, Claire kind of just pursues his desires and values because he believes the world to be his oyster. Lad also just does what he wants, but it's different. It's different to Claire because he does it in a way where he doesn't really care about anyone else. Now Lad despises Claire for his self-confidence, for believing the world revolves around him. But perhaps Lad doesn't see that he basically embodies a similar level of confidence too. If you don't care how your actions affect others, and you act with just your desires, then you're basically acting like someone who thinks they're invincible. But I guess he'd need like an outside perspective for that. It's hard to see oneself without a mirror. But that's another parallel with Claire. 
It's said that if you have trouble seeing through the eyes of others, that it can be considered egocentrism. That I wouldn't call Lad self-obsessed. He's more just obsessed with the thought. At the end of the day, Lad worked at the behest of his obsession and is enchanted by the possibilities of bloodshed that could occur. According to Lad, Claire is a phony because he shows sympathy. Claire shows sympathy towards China because her boss is someone who doesn't want to take hostages or kill passengers. From Lad's perspective, he's just a phony pacifist who spouts random crap about war without ever experiencing it. There's disgust Lad experiences when he sees this kind of sympathy. He hates that if a bunch of kids tried to kill Claire, that Claire wouldn't kill them. Lad shows a similar disgust towards Huey when he hears he wants to lead a revolution that doesn't result in the weak dying. A truly soft resolve from Lad's perspective. He also knows that Huey isn't a mortal, a guy who literally cannot die. If you literally cannot die, then you must think you're invincible. Someone Lad can't wait to remove from the earth. We can see Lad's disgust to those kinds of people when he asks, are you one of those guys who think they're not going to die? We see more of this with Lad's interactions with Shez. The more confident Shez acts, the more he sees that the person before him sees themselves as being in control. The more he sees this, the more irritated he gets. During that scene, we constantly get statements from the author that Lad's anger was boiling when he sees Shez acting confidently and then diffusing when he sees that his confidence is not there. We get the impression that Lad can't contain himself, that he works at the behest of his impulses, that he's holding himself back from like an instinctual level, no other thought within his brain. That we learn that Lad is in fact thinking a bit. Shez thinks that he isn't a calculating individual, but Lad says he does calculate. But then he kills and proceeds to shoot Shez. This might sound contradictory, but I think the calculation Lad is referring to is his how confident is this person meter. When this meter increases, so when he sees more confidence, he's calculating whether he should kill the person in front of him. And when that meter decreases, then he's calculating if maybe he should listen. When Lad decides to shoot Shez, the meter is at its boiling point. He's thought about it. Now seeing confidence within others not only sets him off, but he also finds it disappointing. Just like Claire, he will with great prejudice remove those he deems to not be worthy of living. But I think it's more related to the disgust he feels. When Claire does it, it feels like God's judgement. He's also disappointed in China because she's just a kid in love according to him. Basically, she's doing what she's doing because she cares about someone else, not because of anything Lad deems to be interesting. Caring in such a way is disappointing and boring. What Lad does find impressive is China's strength. When she stabs the side of the train in order to not fall off, and then proceeds to cut his ear. So clearly, there are specific things that Lad values. He values strength. But as said before, these values, all of that is just still mere aesthetic or a flavour that is at the behest of the thought that occupies him. His relation to life and death, to those that die and those do not, occupy his mind at all times. It's clear that this obsession is what binds his marriage with Lua. We come to find out that Lua can't wait to die at the hands of Lad. They have an interesting relationship. She is actually the only person he exchanges a genuine smile with. Now, Lua doesn't want to live. She has dread in her eyes. She wants to die. Lad promises her that after he's killed everyone who wants to live more than her, he'll kill her and she loves this idea. This is how he proposed, actually. Lua has absolute confidence in Lad and has complete faith in him in most occasions. She knows he's strong and can take out anyone, though her faith in him does begin to falter. 
This diminishment happens once she sees the rail tracer in the window. When she looks into the eyes of the rail tracer, she thinks to herself that Lad would have no chance against it. Seeing this monster, her dead eyes now have light in them. The life actually returns in her eyes. During a conversation with the magician, Fred, he notes that there's a lot of life in her eyes unlike before. It seems the idea of Lad dying before her brings her back into the world. Lua rushes to save Lad, and that's how she ends up where Lad and Claire are fighting. We find out that Lad is her entire world. She knows that Lad will gain joy from killing her, and she's perfectly content with that. There's nothing more that she could want. Death and life are two sides of the same coin. It was a reincarnation that existed between the both of them. It's clear that she also has a similar relationship with life and death that Lad does, and I think it's fair to assume that their bond was formed due to this. If Lad dies, then a perception of the world dies, he's everything to her, the world will no longer exist. It seems unlike Claire, she doesn't believe that the world revolves around her, it's the complete and utter opposite. She believes that the world revolves around Lad, and Lad doesn't see that he acts like the world revolves around him. Now Lad does try to fight the rail tracer, but he ultimately fails to land a hit on him. Claire showcases just how powerful he is, and just how confident he is. Claire had a gun, and he could have used that up to this point, but he decided not to use it. That's the confidence he wanted to show Lad, that he had a weapon and he had decided not to even use it. That he was just playing around with him, and he asks him if he feels humiliated. In response to that question, we get a note from the author that he does in fact feel humiliated. During this moment, he even states that Lua's intuition on things are generally pretty correct too. He was out of his depth and she knew it. It's interesting to see Lad feel humiliated. It's an emotion we don't see from someone like him often at all. He's generally an eccentric killing machine. Claire actually plays a game with Lad and basically threatens to strangle Lua with a rope. With this scene, we get to see the more kind of gentle side of Lad. Something more caring even. We get to see that for Lad, Lua isn't just a toy. He does everything and anything he can do, losing his ring finger in the process to keep her alive. During this scene, Lua is also sacrificing herself for Lad. They are both trying to save one another. That being said, when Lua is trying to save Lad, there's a real sincerity he sees from her, and I think he doesn't like it. He wants Lua to have dead eyes. He wants her to care less. Seeing her care for him in that way makes him uncomfortable and less wanting to kill her later on. The light in her eyes makes him want to kill her now, before he kills other people. Lua's eyes are shining with life, and it's not beautiful to him. So this gentle side of Lad is not that gentle. It's still quite twisted, but he does definitely care in some way. And his next actions showcase this. They're both hurtling towards a pole, and hitting it would result in their deaths. Previously, Claire had boasted about the world being his. I guess Lad ends up interpreting that this pole showing up to be an extension of Claire. It just kind of popped up, right? And if Claire contains the world, then the obstacles within his way would be Claire's dominion. And there's no way Lad would bow down to that. As a last screw you to Claire, he punches the pole viciously, which promptly causes an explosion. Now we have to wonder, does he also punch the pole to save Lua? How much does he actually care for Lua outside of their agreement? I think that would be interesting to explore. We come to find out that Lad loses his arms, but he takes it like a champ, and he's even getting interviewed. He hasn't learned much through the whole ordeal, but what he has gained is someone new to try to kill. 
Huey the Immortal. His obsession is still thriving within him. I think any immortal would be worth killing to lad. Any immortal will have the confidence of I cannot die. The perfect enemies for lad to put his terror into. That's all for lad. Now we'll talk about Fred. Now just like the other two, Fred also has a relationship with death. Fred is the grey magician from the last volume. So in the last volume, we understand that he is someone who has dead eyes similar to Lua. He wants to die, and he gazes at the moonlight with a certain yearning. You get the feeling that he wants to be taken away, and that in some ways, he's at peace. We learn more about Fred within this novel. He found himself in the middle of a great war. The role he played was that of a military doctor. It was viciously fought, and in Verdant, where he was stationed, Disaster struck and he was the only survivor. Fred was involved in more than one war and once again he was the only survivor. As we can see, this is a theme of Fred's life, that of a survivor. In a series like Bakano where immortality runs rampant, you can't help but consider if Fred isn't an immortal. If there were grenades exploding next to him, turning himself and his companions into slush, if he was an immortal, then the slush can come together and make him whole again. I think it's fair to assume that Fred is probably an immortal, but there is some evidence to say otherwise. He does have a large burn across his face. If one was an immortal, then the burn should heal. Though an immortal will keep their physical features prior to being granted immortality. So if someone such as Fred was burned prior to receiving immortality, then the burn would remain imprinted on his face. Moving across from his face to his eyes, as mentioned before, he has eyes similar to that of Lua. Dead eyes. Eyes no longer of this world. But he does notice a difference between her and himself. As mentioned before, Lua's eyes light up with life when she believes Lad is in danger. Fred doesn't have anyone or anything like that. Nothing that lights the fire within his eyes. As mentioned before, Fred is a doctor, so one would assume that at least helping other people would ignite something within him. But we learn that's not the case. He doctors not out of outward love for humanity but from a space of obligation, because he feels like he has to. Even when he's helping others, his eyes are dim. The lack of light in his eyes is also reflected through his outfit. Grey clothes that wraps around him. Grey is a colour that tends to be used to showcase a lack of vibrancy and saturation. He dresses this way because he likes to blend in, to not be noticed. He even goes as far as to say Lua provides more value than he does, because she has something that ignites her who lights up her will to live. A white suit member tries to comfort him, saying he is diminishing the value he is providing to others. I think this comment cuts through to the essence of what's holding Fred back. Initially I had thought that Fred was perhaps at peace, but the more that's revealed around him, the more I notice that he's someone who devalues himself first and foremost. Fred's a doctor, and it's clear that he provides a lot of value for the effort he puts in. But he doesn't see that. He wears clothes that would make him blend in, Something that keeps him from standing out. To stand out is to make one's presence known. It's to say, I'm here. And more importantly, that I deserve to be here. I think that Fred feels guilty that he's a survivor. That his comrades died, but he didn't. I don't think he believes that he deserves to exist. And because of that, he'll diminish everything about himself. He doesn't realise that he's actually making a positive effect on other people. That he has impact, and that impact is a clear reason why he deserves to still be alive. Perhaps if he understood this, the light in his eyes would spark once more. When you devalue yourself, you aren't seeing reality. 
You aren't seeing what you offer and also that you can just exist. If you have a fake existence, then you can't be open to the reality of life and all its experiences. I'm curious if by learning to value himself and seeing that he deserves to exist, Fred will learn to be open to the full spectrum of life and through this, the light in his eyes will shine. Seeing Fred change and develop, I think will be a treat. Now that's all for Fred. And lastly, we'll be moving on to Rachel. Rachel is the woman in coveralls from the last volume. She's working as an information gopher, so she provides information to an information broker. She only meets her boss face to face, and because of that, she has to do a lot of travelling. Her primary mode of travel is by trains, and she's taken the flying pussyfoot to deliver the information to him. Delivering hush-hush information, she would have to be in places where violence and danger is afoot always knee-deep into the machinations of the underworld. A white soon named Vicky could feel intense aura upon seeing her. He comments that her eyes are unsettling. He can't help but avert his eyes away. It's clear that she's seen some things. Her familiarity with dangerous situations allows her to be on high alert when she sees Vicky in front of her. The second she sees Vicky, she opens a window and dips out. Despite her underworld affiliations, Rachel is very aware of the black suits and specifically Goose and Chane. She comments that she felt like Chinese eyes were boring into her back. So despite having intense eyes of her own, she might be a tear below China when it comes to the carnage that she's witnessed. We'll have to see if that holds true in future volumes. Rachel being an information gopher, a certain level of curiosity is required to have such a job. There are moments where her curiosity gets the better of her. For example, she gets interested in a freight car and starts peeking around. Due to this, she runs into the rail tracer, a man dripped from head to toe in blood right in front of her. She runs away quite terrified, but despite the terror, she's drawn into what the black suits are doing. She can't help herself but investigate when she sees something interesting happening. This inquisitiveness leads her to noticing the Barium family being captured. This inbuilt curiosity definitely helps her out with the job, and it's not really depicted as a flaw per se in her character. The reason why she lands into trouble is because of her conscience, her inner critic that she can't help but appease. When Rachel sees the Barium mother and daughter captured, she tries to pull herself away. She tells herself that she shouldn't do things that won't bring her any money. There's nothing in it for her to save her mother and daughter. She's fighting herself, though her moral conscience is pushing her to help them. It's her inner sense of duty and morality. And what happens is she ends up putting herself in danger for the sake of others, and as a result, gets captured. You can tell by the way that she tries to rationalise with herself that her conscience is something that she sees more as a burden rather than something she appreciates. She can't help but act at the behest of it, which we would believe to be a good thing, as she is helping a mother and child after all. But within Rachel, you can tell that her conscience is something that has caused her a lot of grief, and it will continue to do so in the future. A lot of it is tied to her image of herself. When one of the black suits falls out of the train, she thinks, please, please don't die. I don't want to be a murderer. When Mr. Barium gives her money for saving his wife and daughter, she gets frustrated that he's misinterpreting her intentions. She doesn't want to see herself as a murderer, and she doesn't want to see herself as someone who does things for a reward. There's a certain way she wants her deeds to be seen. It's important to her that her image to herself is one of goodness, and that her image to others is also one of goodness. That image of herself is directly related to her conscience. Her inner critic requires her to see herself in certain ways. This inner voice is directly tied to her father, and this is the core conflict she is engaging with throughout the novel. Rachel's father was unfairly pincered by the rail train making organisation he worked for, and was blamed for an error that he wasn't doing. 
he was the scapegoat. What was also devastating was that he really loved trains. He loved them so much. It was betrayal from those that were in power over what he loved. This tragedy weighs heavily on Rachel. She's angry at the organisation her father worked for, the place that used him and tossed him aside. She has to channel that anger out. She does so by not paying for her tickets and she boards those trains. It's a screw you to those that are in charge. Though the author very early notifies us that this act of revenge, not paying for a ticket, is just self-satisfaction. It's against the law so she could get into trouble, so it can be self-harm as well. But it's too indirect to actually do any damage to the organisation. There's no potency to her revenge. There's a certain lack of resolve and perhaps even confusion. Despite this, she continues to do it. She has no qualms ordering food despite not buying a ticket. The cooks aren't part of the organisation, so it's all good. Despite this, it makes her very anxious. When she sees Jacuzzi walking past her and saying the word conductor, she freaks out and thinks about the worst case scenario, which is he might be riding her out to the conductor. When the rail tracer asks for a ticket, she screams and runs away. We can tell very early on, her revenge, while justified, isn't really helping her in any way. It's mostly causing her issues. It's not fueling her. It's mostly meandering. But the thought of her revenge disappearing is not something she wants to happen. Her boss, the information broker, says that she should consider buying a ticket as giving money to her father in a way. He was someone who helped build the trains. But she can't do that. Despite her revenge being a very mild flame, it's still a flame that she doesn't want to extinguish. She wants to still make it sure that it's kept alive, even if it's not doing much. Her relationship with her father alongside her conscience is what makes her help the captured Bering family. During that scene, she thinks to herself, don't be like the organisation that screwed over your father. They didn't think about him and how they would screw him over. You have to think about how you affect others. She wants to ensure that she's nothing like that organisation. What's more telling is that she feels guilt in this scene. It's implied that she feels guilty for the ride stealing that she's done to this point. That the action of saving this family is repentance for that. She knows deep down that what she's doing is wrong. It's another moment where her conscience won't let up. Her conscience is far more powerful force than her anger. Though she does feel intense rage at one point. When she finally sees the person who screwed over her father before her, she's seething with rage. She's injured at this point and I think her rage dissipates slightly. With a gun pointed at her by the man who ruined her father, she can't help but think that it might be a cruel twist of fate, that it's payback for all the riots she stole. The fact that she thinks this in front of her sworn enemy shows just how much the ride stealing has been eating away at her. While she doesn't want to die by his hand, she does still want to die to repent for her sins. She screams the rail tracer's name, knowing that she could very well die by his hands. Claire appears and knocks her sworn enemy out, but Rachel asks with tears in her eyes to not kill him. Now this is where we get more specific about what's eating her up inside. What's tearing her apart. She's sick to death of all the murder on the train from everyone. The blood spattering everywhere. She's sick of herself for the ride stealing. She's sick that the sanctity and the essence of the train has been besmirched by her and others. Her father loved trains dearly and she knows this. To see the train being tarnished in any way spits on the image of her father. His love for his trains. But that's not all. She says, and so do I. She loves them too. She adores them. And she's been betraying that love within her all this time. She had cut off her beating heart. Well, I think it's interesting to consider whether she loves trains because she loves her father 
or if trained specifically speak to her as a person, one thing's for clear. She had been bearing an aspect of herself in the guise of revenge. We come to a heartfelt image, one of my favourites where she's tearing up, asking the rail tracer to end it all with her, to punish her for her sins. She considers her sins, of ride stealing, to be on par with committing murder. She wants it all to end. Let the murders end, let it all end with a death. Now Claire doesn't do it, and she survives. We also hear that the asshole who framed her father ends up having that used against him, so justice does prevail, which is always good to see. This entire rollercoaster of emotions, though, does lead to something else that's positive too. A certain mist within Rachel clears away. A grief that she finally gets in touch with. That she's allowed to feel. When she talks with the information broker, she's made a commitment. That she's going to charge for the travel fees. She'll be paying for a ticket now. She says that she doesn't know why she feels she wants to do this. But I think it's pretty clear why. She loves her father. And she loves trains. So Rachel finally sees that her acts of revenge were kind of useless. And that what she should actually do in order to respect herself and her father is to really embrace that she loves trains and to allow herself to respect them in the ways that she wants to. And that's all for Rachel. So we went through the characters of Lad and Lua, Fred, and Rachel. Next week, we'll be going through Chane, Huey, and Shez. Thanks to everyone for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.